0: Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution, but increasingly in the service of mapping a way through to a flourishing, generous, decent future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. And my guest this week spends her entire life finding ways in which we can be generous and connected and loving, even while afraid. I met Belina Rafi when we ended up in a breakout room together on somebody else's group. I can't even remember where or when it was. But I discovered I was in a room with somebody who had taught improv to NASA as part of a way of creating more engagement over sustainability. Because, as she says frequently, it doesn't work anymore to scream at people that if they were only a list a little bit more aware, they would be as afraid as we are. It's not really a useful selling point. Bolina, instead, teaches stand-up and improv. And no, I didn't know that there was a difference between these two things either. In fact, I hardly knew what they were. But I looked on her website, where it says that she's empress and director of a company called Mafic, whose name means boisterously to celebrate. She's co-founder of the Thrivable World Quest. And she's taught improv and stand-up everywhere from Tehran to Bhutan and to a lot of companies in between. And she's an author. Her book is called Using Improv to Save the World and Me, and I thoroughly recommend reading it. It's so much fun and carries so much wisdom. So people of the podcast, please join me in welcoming bellina Rafi, empress and all-round amazing human being. Belina, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. We are recording on the day when it's just been announced that the UK has another Prime Minister. So this is October's Prime Minister. Doubtless there'll be another one by January or so, I would think, I hope, actually. Anyway, looking at all your various exciting things that you do online, I notice that you describe yourself as an Empress. And I want to know where you are Empress of, who are your subjects in this empire? Because I think I would rather be in your empire than, than some of the ones that might be about to be imposed on us.
1: <laughs> Lovely. And I love this question. And it blows my mind that nobody's ever asked it before as well. So I'm Empress of the Cosmic Giggle, is what I think kind of that I'm bringing in. And my subjects are opt-in only. <laughs> so it's a warm invitation to come play. Um, and you're welcome to opt out as well so yeah
0: alrighty. it's a virtual space i i'm hoping that by opting into yours i automatically opt out of whatever
1: we'll see if we can infiltrate
0: <laughs> yeah wouldn't that, wouldn't that be fun can you imagine infiltrating with improv into into the governments of our world it would be so interesting yeah. however having said that most of our listeners actually they may be much more well informed than I was, because when I started reading your book, I had no idea what improv was. But you've you've written a book called Using Improv to Save the World and Me, a true story. And it's glorious and fascinating and inspiring. And I'll put a link in the show notes so people can get it. But for those who are listening and are like me and don't know the difference between improv and stand-up, you've done these two things and you bring them into the world now as a facilitator of cosmic giggles and activators of awesomeness. So can you tell us what they are and how you came to be the person doing this? Sure. Um, uh, This may meander.
1: (laughs) Meandering is good. That's what this podcast is about. Feel free to meander. Beautiful. So improv and stand-up are different. And I took my first classes in both in New York City um, in 1996 um, when I had a job that was simultaneously boring and stressful (laughs) in the back office of a bank. And it was stressful, I think, because they were treating complex things as linear things, and they were Mm. under-resourcing the people side, and they were sort of putting business is a machine on an altar that sounds familiar that sounds like that's still happening um almost 20 years on but anyway sorry i didn't mean to interrupt (laughs) Um, and it's also you know it i grew up playing in forests and stuff and it's not like working at the as a cross-functional project manager in the bank was actually making the world better (laughs) so one of the um ways I said, like, uh, let me just play with people is I took a um, my first stand-up comedy class and I'd love to make people laugh. I had started in high school watching uh, HBO specials with really glorious uh, comedians. I love George Carlin. There was a guy named Jake Johansson who, who did a show on HBO in the 80s and I can still remember lines from his set. So there's something like really powerful and beautiful about the crafting of stand-up. So stand-up is... Well, there's a really nice definition of like where does wh- when is something funny and it, it's um one definition from a book called the humor code is when something is sort of simultaneously um uh, aberrant or it, like breaks our moral code you know th- um more our understanding of what's right in the world and at the same time is treated as normal. And and that's part of why I love using it in the space of environmental stuff, sustainability stuff, climate stuff, social stuff, is because there's so much of that. And um, so, so and standup comedians kind of have permission to tell the truth because they help us digest it. Um, so the craft of standup comedians, comedy there is you you traditionally you write stuff you refine it there's certain joke structures and pausing and and ways to do things that tend to be more uh, powerful in the craft so a lot of it 99% of it is sort of worked ahead of time but you deliver it in a very alive way and the improv side is different. Sometimes it, um, you can get f- glorious laughs from either <laughs> improv or stand up. The improv is much more emergent. So, um, a friend of mine, Paul Jackson, describes it as freedom within a structure. And what I love about bringing the mindset of improv and the practice of improv into organizations is that we're playing with a structure that's much thinner than what people are used to. And it, and it, introduces certain principles of how we operate with each other, which are really useful for navigating complex adaptive systems, for suspending judgment, so we can just sort of dream <laughs> new solutions, co-create sort of new ideas about how to approach things. And we, we're also invited to notice more about what's happening in our world. So um, there's a Fabulous guy named Robert Poynton, and he has a a model that's in my book. Um, It's a lovely triangle, and it's um, let go, notice more, use everything. And and actually, um, so I did this really stressful uh, bank job, and there was something about after I started taking improv classes on the weekends my boring stressful job got easier and I didn't quite understand why yet at that point, but I noticed it. And then I did, um, got into like Y2K compliance for the bank, which was just crazy stressful. And I ended up doing an MBA in the UK to relax. (laughs) Um, And when I got out of it, I somehow got this job as as a A consultant facilitator to help marketing excellence. Uh, So marketing executives achieve marketing excellence. And I felt like I loved the marketing door because it was holistic that you could actually get to a lot of the organization and how it operated through that door. But I hated the wealth extraction Values and that's where um, Bill Hicks, if anybody knows him, the stand-up comedian Bill Hicks, he has this great gig a uh, great bit on um, if you're in marketing or advertising, kill yourself. <laughs> I'll just, it's, it's, it's actually hilarious about kind of playing with how awful the morals are and the wealth extraction and, and, and he does it in a really nice way. So when I was working with these executives, I would have that kind of in my head and be like, shut up, Bill, not now, you know, I have to talk about segmentation or whatever it was. But what, what struck me was I was doing kind of death by PowerPoint with these smart people in a room. And I, I much preferred, I was like, there's gotta be a better way to flip inside out Learning So that we can seed some ideas, but really have them work with it and share each other's wisdom and, and things like that. So I, I did um, in the UK, uh, gosh, probably in 2006, I think I did a, a pilot in Surbiton at the, in the top <laughs> probably room of a church somewhere. uh, Because I'd read a book called Improvisation, Inc. And it was about how do we bring the mindsets of improv to people in business. And I I ran a pilot and I thought, I'm a genius. No one else is doing this in the UK. And somebody said, oh, you should meet Paul. (laughs) He created a whole global group doing this. And I did and sort of lovingly made him be my business partner. Um, And I studied with Keith Johnston, who's one of the best like the performance granddaddy of improv, but always my mindset was, how do we bring this to organizations? Initially, I felt really sort of hesitant about mentioning sustainability and things like that. Um, at, it was like creativity, and then I try to work sustainability in there somewhere. <laughs> um, but after I saw in, Inconvenient Truth, and I just noticed it did something important and something awful simultaneously. Like I'm sitting there and I'm going, okay, everything he's saying is really, really important. And I literally want to go into a Hummer and go shopping and get a big shotgun while it's all still here. And I'm like, that can't be the right, you know, that can't be the right response (laughs) for us as a group. Um, So I'm like, let me bring improv into the space because it's a, it's a technology that's designed to help us when, when we would normally be afraid to be present and generous and connected.
0: Right. Yes, that. And that seems to me, reading your book, listening to other things that you've done, because your response to films about climate change, whatever they are, is not unique. There is a tendency for the petrol to just go out and buy a bigger car or everybody to just turn the heating up a couple of notches. They can't now because the price has gone up. But we need to find ways to be generous, connected, and loving, even while afraid. And we could go off and do nonviolent communication classes, and I'm sure that's very good. And it always strikes me as quite worthy and incredibly dull. And I'm sure for the nonviolent communication people listening who are now going to write to me in their tens of thousands, I don't think it really is dull, but it has that sense of it's another job. Whereas what you're doing has a sense of radical fun. I I have to say, I think going to do a stand-up course where you actually have to do stand-up at the end of it would be utterly terrifying. But leaving that aside, you now are not just going into businesses teaching them how to market better by doing improv. You're going around the world connecting in, as far as I can tell, with a lot of really high-level people who get the science and are terribly afraid, but don't know how to do the generous, connected, and loving. Can you tell us more about how you made the switch from one to the other, and then what you do and how you do it?
1: I I got really lucky. Um, thank you for asking. I, um, I, I had some really lovely connections. So um, at some point, quite early on, I got connected with uh, Andy Middleton, who's in Wales, and he was doing really lovely sustainability stuff. And he got early on that improv is important in the sustainability space. So just to go back and say that Marshall Rosenberg of the Nonviolent Communication, he was one of the best speakers I've ever seen. And I got to see him at uh, St. James's James's Church in in Piccadilly. Um, And and he had this great story. uh, Sorry to go slightly off piece, but it just it really stayed with me where he said he had been working with a lady uh, who was a teacher in an in inner school and, um, she had, uh, been, you know, learning, practicing nonviolent communication. And there was, uh, she was in a high school, there was, uh, an adult student who st- stayed by later and, um, after everybody had left and he wanted to rape her and she used nonviolent communication to talk him out of it and got away Okay, and she was telling this to Marshall Rosenberg, and she said, "Now, if you could only help me work with my mother, <laughs> which, I love, <laughs> which I love so much that, like, you know, like, rapist is one thing, but oh, you, you know, like, all of this stuff. <laughs> just talking to your mom is like another level. Yep.
0: gosh, gosh, but isn't that a testament to how powerful it is if, if you know what you're doing? Goodness, and wouldn't the world be a different place with all of that? But. That's a separate conversation. Let's stay with Yes. Improv. Improv. Yeah. Stand up. I'm still So let me get this right. Stand up has scripts. Yep, yep. And you may play a little bit. Improv is broadly not scripted. It's just go out there. Do you have ideas when you're doing improv? Do you have a kind of yep. sense of the arc of what you want to do or, or sparks to seeds or something to get you going or do you just go out and do something?
1: both um it, it depends on the, the form of improv that you're doing you're always operating by certain uh, very simple principles like make each other look good uh sometimes short turn taking is in there sometimes there's um if they're doing something called long form improv there's like a narrative arc that they they know and then they get input from the audience like let's have an opera about you know cheese or something like that and they they make a whole thing following the structure so the structure is always the same but the content is different because because they get those inputs on the night. Yeah, stand up is it, uh, um, as I said, ninety nine percent scripted. The one comedian that I have been told does not script ahead of time is Billy Connolly. That he riffs. That he's so talented at riffing that he just sort of uh, goes for it and and is it, he's masterful at it. But if you're a normal person and you're doing stand up, um, you do write and refine and rehearse and you 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 um, you know have a go. And it's it's tricky because sometimes even um, the same set on a different night might play differently or something like that, but you're truly, really trying to hone so that each word counts and is powerful. And in improv, you can get lucky and have this like magical emergent moment, which is incredibly joyful. The craft is coming from the ability to improvise and the content is sort of ephemeral, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so this is taking us down a bit of a rabbit hole, but my experience with teaching circles on the shamanic basis or whatever else that I do, it seems to me that everything that happens in an energetic space depends on all the people who are there. And however much you've scripted your stand-up, which is, I mean, it sounds a bit like you're an actor of sorts. You learn your lines, you go out and you present them as well as you can. But even actors say, you know, the audiences are different. So presumably part of the art of stand-up is when you feel that you're you know, the room is dead and you're going to have to go off piece a bit to liven it up or that a particular thing is really resonating and you need to drop other bits and bring them in. Or is that moving into what improv is where you improv is just reading the room and going with the room and trying to find the wave of energy that you can surf in the room?
1: I think I think different comedians do different things. So, so I think you're absolutely right that there is a sort of back and forth with the audience that you need to turn into from an energetic space. And the course that I teach combines a few things. So it does combine, um, the improv mindset and practice so that you can just, um, uh, notice kind of what's happening around you suspend judgment for a little while and get the write stuff down do your shitty first draft I hope that's okay <laughs> and um, you know like just get it out there and so that you can refine it um, but also to notice more about like what is your thought process is that- sort of taking you out of you're like you're not everything that you think. I don't know if you see those bumper stickers like that to go into the witness level of yourself and kind of notice what the patterns are and things like that. So, so the improv kind of helps you with that stuff, but it also helps you with, in my book, I talk about it as a, as a secret love technology, because it really was designed when you're on stage and feeling frightened, particularly improv, improv theater, that you are, uh, connected and generous and, and loving. And I try to bring that approach to stand up because, um, if you've ever gone to an open mic night, you can see a lot of people not operating from that. Because, and they're sort of on fire, nervous, and they're either attacking the audience or they're attacking themselves. And it's, it's, it's kind of awful to watch, um, and, and to be on the receiving end of. And so what I've, done in service of let's talk about the ideas that matter in terms of environment and climate and society, like anything that makes the world a better place. Let's make a really loving form of stand-up comedy about stuff that matters. And we're going to practice in terms of presence a lot of the stuff that comes from improv and from how we write, what helps us to write also from improv, but we still write and refined and we give drafts and I give coaching and all this stuff. And by the time we get to the show, you'll have rehearsed it like seven times and you'll do the show. And I also MC it that way that, that like, Hey, this is a really loving show and we, and you're part of that. So we're going to be loving and we expect you to be loving in return. And we have this, this, like really magical energy that's created.
0: You're trying to make me not feel terrified by the idea of going through one of your courses. I, I would love it. But
1: the idea that there's a show at the end is just way scary. It's a metaphor. So the people who come to the show are either alumni <laughs> um, or like my like your nicest friends. And, and even the process of inviting people to the show, I ask you to notice, like, are you leaking your own fear about it? Or are you asking them cleanly, you know, like going a bit back to, you know, like the nonviolent communication, like, are you being nonviolent to yourself? Are you, uh, are you saying like, yeah, I probably won't be very good. And you know, like, "Uh, but I'm, but come on the 17th or whatever it is. It's like, no, no, no. (laughs) Like, like what happens if you just sit in acceptance of what is, what happens if you sit in, like, you really have crafted this over six weeks and, um, and I also I, I wrote a blog uh, that is titled "The Importance of of Ignoring Your Spouse Right Before a Show," <laughs> because <laughs> because what I've noticed is that like people will be like like I think it's funny but I'm not sure and then this the spouse and the like you know like the partner will come in and and it'll create holes in the set because the partner writes what they would do, but it doesn't read as the person who's presenting. And and the other thing with stand-up that, that I do is there's no character work. This is not about acting. This is about really bringing you on stage and kind of like your nicest, smartest, funniest self. <laughs> so it's all of your insights and, and all of your stuff, and it's really honed and crafted so that every word counts. And I really hold a safe space of like, if you're being... Self-deprecation, if it's loving, that's fine. But if you're being like mean to yourself, it's like nope, cut that out. <laughs> you know, like nope, we're gonna we're really holding a space for I love myself. I love the audience. The system is silly. Okay, and and often here's what I love out of the you know like out of the the system, or here's who, what I would really love to manifest on Earth. Right,
0: right, interesting. Uh, yeah, so I'm watching my own process and thinking that I have no problem talking to a thousand people in a room if I yeah. think I have something useful to say and that they're there because they choose to be yeah so they've read my book and they want to come along and hear me talk about the book or they want you know they've heard about accidental gods and they want to understand conscious evolution more totally fine but I'm going to stand on a stage and pretend to be funny at you. Notice the word pretend in there. I've noticed that. Can we take that out? Um, yeah, no, I know. It's interesting, though, isn't it? It's it's the yeah. So what happens, I guess, is you get a self-selecting group of people who have something to say and that comedy is their way through to saying it, which sounds great. I think making people laugh, it sounds fantastic.
1: The people who come come for different reasons, and some of them – are just tired of being sad or tired of being angry and they're tired of not being listened to mm. and this gives so the process is very healing it gives people um a lovely group of people <laughs> you know like the invitation is coming you know like if you want to make the world a better place let's and let's do this in a loving way so it, it sort of self-selects lovely people and i i tend to find that like the ones who are like Oh yeah, but I'm not really funny. And in the pre, like I have a survey, like how you, you like how you feeling, how's it going? And and the ones are like, you know, like oh, I just want to warn you, you know, I'm not very funny. (laughs) Are always like, they're like the top bill like awesomeness thing that it's like this course gives people permission to just chime and and just be playful and just bring your beautiful insights. And one of the things they worry about is like, okay, but the stuff that I care about isn't funny isn't inherently funny Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah but there's going to be an aspect of it that really is and if you can share in the in the context building you can share truth about some of the heavy stuff that's going on but if you relieve the tension with something that is also true or an extension of the truth um, but is silly it means Mm -hmm. that we can process the stuff that is heavy because it hasn't gotten to a point where the tension's too high and we just run away or we go into fight or flight. We, yeah. So, so that's why, um, I mean, when I said, I remember lines from, uh, you know, uh, a comedy show I saw in 1988, like that's how powerful it is. I, I give loads of, um, improv workshops and I love doing it. can never remember what happens. <laughs> like I could sort of vaguely remember. The, and, and, but for the standup, I can remember words of people's sets from five years ago. Can you tell us I'm
0: just out of interest, anything that you can remember? Because I'm really curious to know what kinds of things would lodge in your memory when you're doing so much of this stuff.
1: So, so there was um, a really lovely guy. He's a friend of mine too named James. And and he, he was saying how uh, he got into sustainability. He's like, you know, for the ladies. <laughs> and then he said, because what lady can resist... A post monologue on biosphere death. <laughs> and I thought that was. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I wanted to make t shirts of that. I just thought that was hilarious. Nice. And, and he was like, he's a lovely guy. And he was being very loving, but I thought that one moment of, of self deprecation was just beautifully crafted. Um, there was another lady who her, her take was like, if you are in sustainability, you will be morally inconsistent. And like how awful it is to have people going like, yeah, you're vegan, but you're wearing leather shoes. <laughs> like, and like, there's something about the fact that, in this like, with lady was named Jane, she was in Australia. She, she said, like, there was something weird about the fact that if you're morally inconsistent, but you're trying, somehow that's worse than people who don't try at all. <laughs> she was like, "Wait on a second, that's." So, um, I love that she captured that dynamic. So, so it's that sort of thing that, um,
0: yeah. Oh, interesting. Yes, and that's the kind of thing that really toxic Twitter rants. I've I've kind of noticed flame walls and stepped away from them from people trying to process that, and particularly that last one of yeah, I want to live in a five terawatt world, but we live in a nineteen terawatt world. This is my new framing of of the power differentials of what we use and what we could be using to be a one planet. And yet, I still need to get from a to b. and And it may be that in the long run, we all just you know don't go further than we can walk in any given day, but currently, I can't walk to the shops. And there is no public transport and and it feels dreadful. And so, Yeah, how do you, and turning that into something that isn't just a a toxic reverb would be really nice. And
1: actually, what I'm helping people do is get there first and make it funny.
0: Mm.
1: Because if you're kind of feeling guilty about some aspect of your behavior, even though you're trying to do good in the world, like if you can illuminate that first and, and rock it, like make people really laugh, you're not hiding it. and. I think for the things that we hide, that's where things can get toxic and unhealthy. But if you can say, Hey, you know, like I'm a sustainability thing, and I still buy you know like can- uh, chocolate candy bars at the gro- uh, gas station, even though I know that they're not you know like they're they're probably there's child labor, there's, you know, like the packaging has probably killed a sea turtle, you know like the whole like but it's if you put it out there and you even share all of those bits, somebody listening might go, I don't need this chocolate bar because they feel safe. They're not, mm. they're not being attacked. They're, they're having a person sort of share all the different components. Um, and that's what I think is, is actually quite healthy to kind of counterbalance that, you know, like, you know, you're wearing leather shoes sort of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Gosh, there are so many ways we could go with this. I'm interested in how you made the shift because I think we haven't got to there yet, from training in business. I I remember also you said somewhere along the line, I think in your book, that your boss had been a Gurkha because nobody nobody except the military could handle the pressure of a system that was treating everything as linear, treating people as component parts that could be slotted out and slotted in and, and minimized. And it seems to me that was way back that you were doing this and it's still in action in parts of the world and particularly the parts of the world that our media focuses on which is to say big business and politics. And you've managed to cut from the big business and the banks to talking with people who are really trying to make a difference. So let's go with that first. How did you make the transition from banks and business to the level that you are currently working at? Because you seem to be talking at some of the highest levels of people who are working in sustainability.
1: Thank you. It's it's a it's an emergent process because I am an improviser. It wasn't sort of a a planned thing, Um, and it's almost you know when you're trying to move like a big fridge and you're sort of rocking it back and forth (laughs) like that's that's sort of um, I feel like I gotta get a lot of my magical gigs because I'm home on the day that they call. Like I I don't like it's not be. I'd actually um, one of the joys of my life is I'm in the collaboration consultant for a science accelerator lab called the frontier development lab and their partners are nasa the seti institute european space agency and a bunch of other groups and and so for eight weeks every summer for the past five summers i've worked with the teams to help them sort of embed the improv mindset and um, what they're doing is they're combining machine learning and artificial intelligence with domain expertise and some of it is uh cancer research some of it is humanitarian stuff so how do we get satellite data processed in a way af- right after disaster faster so the people on the ground can respond some of it's let's map the world's crops and know where they are and how big they are and stuff like that some of it is ah if the if the sun is going to kick out some big weather <laughs> that might affect all of our systems on earth let's let's get uh, like more than a three-day window on that if we can so um, they're cross-functional teams, or they're cross-domain teams. They're, you know, like artificial intelligence or, or domain, and they're also being watched. They're PhD students. They're also being kind of watched by their dream employers, who are all the partners of the thing. And it's like, okay, how do we help people shift from complete imposter syndrome and, you know, like fear, head deer in headlights, and just burying it to playful, open, connected, generous, all of that stuff that we talked about, because we also want, the, like the, the teams are not competing with each other. They're all looking at different stuff, but we want them, if they have an insight on how to build something in AI, because this is every year, they kick out like the leading edge AI stuff um, in, in this sort um, of realms. It's like, how can we help them feel generous to to meet across teams and um, and connect as people first? And it became, it was so interesting to do in person first, and then watch how we, how even more important it is when it's online. Because it's so easy to have empathy die if you're just online or if you're just in an email. So, working out how do we balance not giving people Zoom fatigue, because the inherent thing is they're on the computers a lot for this particular project, but it's like, how do you really value the people stuff in this? and make it work. So um, that came about, James, who I mentioned earlier with his um, uh, um, post codal monologue of biosphere death, he actually created the the science um, lab. He's a beautiful guy. I was just about to do what I thought was gonna be back-to-back sustainable stand-ups around the world to do kind of a stand-up version of what I'd done for the book with the improv. And it didn't sell. Had to like i had just planned to like be away for several months and it just didn't sell so i'm like i'm home and i got a call and and james was like uh can we send you to rome next month next week because we have this thing and i think you'd be perfect for it and that's like that's so that's so that was five years ago and i've been doing it since so that's an example of you know i've worked with big companies i i even um teaching improv i even worked with like Nestle twice. I wouldn't do it again, <laughs> but it was, it was interesting to be in it actually. And to see you know, like who's in it, what do they care about? Um, and, and now I'm, I think I'm just a bit more tricky on on um, who I play with it. Do you know what I mean? With the time I have, I really want the company I want to have champions in the companies I work with who really genuinely want to make a a change.
0: So that takes me to another question, but I want to come back in a bit to how do you actually prevent Zoom fatigue and look at the energetics of working online. But before we get there, this is neatly segueing into where I wanted to go, which was uh, certainly in the UK and I imagine in the US, um, most of the funny people are on the progressive side of the political wing. There are are very, very few funny reactionaries. And the BBC always gets into terrible trouble because um, the Tory party thinks they own the beep and they haven't got enough comics on it and they try and get in somebody right wing and they're wildly and desperately unfunny and they never get to be invited back. And I'm wondering, as you go around, there must be some human beings inside Nestle. I'm guessing they don't stay very long, but I might be projecting all of my stuff about water onto Nestle. Um, what happens if you're in a company full of Republicans? How do you get to be generous and loving and connected while in fear? If if you're on what seems to me, and again, this is all my projection, to be a side of the political spectrum that depends on fear and control and doesn't want people to be generous and loving and connected.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful question. And and I, I want to tease out that I, I did, uh, the nature of the work that I did with them was very different. It was, how do we collaborate um, so that you, they can be better managers at the factories that they were working at? A lot of them were from um, Eastern Europe and um, Asia and and things like that. And for them, this was like the best thing they could have ever done financially short-term for their family, you know, like, so they were pleased to be there. This was very different from how they, um, from their schooling, you know, like, uh, um, they were used to this is what the right answer is. And the improv was interesting for, I guess, whoever chose us to go into Nestle because they needed that shift of nobody else is going to tell you the right answer if something unexpected happens or if something needs to be created on you know, like co-created that doesn't hasn't existed before you need to be able to do that and that's why we were brought in so it wasn't had nothing to do with sustainability had nothing to do with like all my passions i found it very funny cuz a, a friend of mine sort of brought me into that gig and he and i co-facilitated and they gave him a blue chocolate box and they gave me a pink chocolate uh, but yeah so as I said it was interesting just to kind of get a sense of them and that was one of the times where I was like I care about sustainability but I felt weird about bringing it or or like I was looking for avenues to bring it instead of that's why I'm going through the door if that makes sense right yeah absolutely so now that I've shifted now that I'm out (laughs) somebody, (laughs) and I have been for you know Uh, years um I uh it's about somebody who cares about sustainability. Like that's the reason why I want to walk through the door now. So, do you find many,
0: let's say, right of centre people coming along, or is it, as far as you can assess, mainly the people who are already generous and loving and connected? And if anyone listening thinks they're right of centre and that they are generous, loving, and connected, yeah. please get in touch because this is, I'm sure, a huge blind spot on my part. And and it's it's not that all Tories are actually inherently evil, at least. I'm prepared to believe that if someone can persuade <laughs> me of it in ways that I find authentic. But uh, so, Belina might be that person. Have you had many no. right-wing people turn up? No. Okay.
1: Um, yeah, and and it's funny. Um, a friend of mine, um, really beautiful friend of mine, who is I grew up moving to many different countries and places and stuff. And um, she was a friend of mine from North Carolina and she's actually, she and her family are are quite liberal. She's a music teacher, but in quite a conservative, you know, area. And um, so the the people that um, sort of are around her that don't believe in the pandemic or don't believe in any of this stuff, she calls spread necks instead of rednecks. (laughs) It's very nice. But it's, it's funny. She, she kept trying to get me to, Listen to a um, a comedy bit by right wingers that she she finds funny, even though she doesn't share their values. And I couldn't because my stuff is so riding the energy. I just couldn't, like you know, I got fifteen seconds in, and like, no, I I just can't because they're not coming from interesting, you know, like, and everybody's welcome to play in the field, but it's not where I want to. it's not what I want to help get stronger and more powerful. I want the people who who just want permission to bring more love to work, more who want permission to kind of heal and remember that they're not alone and you know, like they're not in it all by themselves, but also to take themselves more more lightly, like you know, like this. Improv I think of as happy Buddhism sometimes where it's sort of, you know, like it's sort of tilted a little with, with joy um, and the comedy lens of, of stand-up. So let me go back. The reason I s- combined those two is because I was doing a lot of improv mindsets more and more with sustainability. People worked with the Red Cross Climate Center for a while um, it, and brought um, interactivity in the improv way to a side event of the COP. and um, uh, called uh, Development and Climate Days for, for a Disaster Risk Reduction, uh, that sort of crowd. And they're, they're known as, like, the fun side event of the COP, um, and, and they get, like, really cool stuff done. So with uh, – I had been at a degrowth conference kind of a few years before, and there was this fabulous man named Pablo Suarez, who was from the Red Cross Climate Center, and he was using play um, to get – Information across to farmers because he realized every time he got out the spreadsheets of the, you know, like the, the charts, yeah, at two, they, like, they didn't want to hear it. So he was using things like dice to help them understand probability and being, he's just, he's masterful at it. When I met him, I'm like, we need to talk. Um, so I was on the board of directors of something called the Applied Improv Network at that point. And I said, I, I, I sort of lovingly stalked him for about three years <laughs> just because I love what he does. And, and I said, please come to one of our conferences. Um, and when he came, he really got it. So there was a formal alliance that was made between the applied improv network and the Red Cross climate center. And that's why we went to the cop. And then they did, they've done like loads of other stuff since then uh, together. And that just made perfect Yay. sense to me because humanitarian, you know, responders need to uh, be able to improvise on the ground. They do it well. And, what they were using us for is how can we communicate and collaborate cross organization or even within the same organization when the departments are really different, mm. and the improv really helps for that too. To just let's park the egos, let's park the agendas, and just what's needed here and how do we how do we be of service of that?
0: Yes, and I'm thinking that I absolutely hear you. I can imagine 15 seconds into what hard right Republicans think is funny would would have me basically lying on the floor bashing my head against a wall but somehow we need to bring everybody together and and I'm guessing that they would have the same response to things that we think are funny mm. and that somewhere along the line we have to get to the root of what is it that we do all hold in common because our framing of the worlds are so different at the moment and tribalism makes them more different and that i imagine if we were to get I know, someone from North Carolina who isn't your friend's music teacher and ask them what their priorities were, they would probably say it was about community and being loving and generous and connected. It's just that what those words mean to them or the image that they have of the people they're being generous and loving and connected with is potentially different to, to ours. And have you come up against that wall in a way that Gives you a sense of how to dissolve it. And if the answer is no, then it's no.
1: Well, the improv and the stand-up and the way that I'm doing it seems remarkably and beautifully universal. So I gave improv workshops in Tehran, in Tokyo, and you know, like all these different places. And there's something joyful about just that human connection. And, and being held in a loving space. And I'm guessing some of them are more conservative than others. You know, like it's a really white, you know, Bhutan, actually funny, I'm part French and France was the hard, hardest place to do it for some reason. I think it's because of their education system is so like analytic. Or if they're doing something joyful, it's like frivolous, but like Im- important, but like separate from the work. And and my stuff, I, I even try to not call things icebreakers because it's like, no, no, this is we're practicing how to do the work. This is part of the work. The how is part of the what. Um, so, uh, but France, for some reason, was a, a tricky place. Like Germany, like they're, they're like you know, like they love it. They so and I've done it in many different things. I've i worked with a big chemical company, or is it, BASF? And and um, for me, I'm mildly dyslexic and. for me i had to keep because i I did it was more on service design and creativity and bringing improv in for service design for them um and they're and they're very safety conscious so they have a very you know like internally they they want to make sure that they don't spill chemicals and all this stuff and i could tell i had a tricky gig because i had trained up like their some of their managers to watch after groups and the whole thing was like okay at one point at a certain time you're gonna have the group say we like that idea of the other group more than this one. they're gonna help them prioritize and and i, I go in there and it was just about to happen and, and the the lady said which one do you vote against <laughs> like, like it wasn't like which one do you vote for but it's which one do you vote against and i'm like "Ooh, i got my i got you know like i gotta work on this but um uh, what kept me happy in the slightly stressful gig with them was to keep BASF in, in order. I had, um, um, to remember the phrase, I created the phrase boobs and so forth just to, just to, so I wouldn't mess up the, the things when I was telling them like, so you BASF people, you like, so I would get it in the right order. Um, and, as a standup, I actually said that in Germany, like, this is what I did. So next time you see a billboard, you can do boobs and so forth. There's like a hand motion. <laughs> and I was told like months after the set that the, a friend and her boyfriend had been passing and they both went like, I <laughs> did the hand motion in front of PASF and it made me really happy. I, I think I went off-piece there, sorry.
0: <laughs> That's okay. Off-piece is good. I And heading back to something you said earlier, you said you'd been to Bhutan, which is where they have gross national happiness instead of GDP, which always strikes me as a very good thing. I met a guy once who claimed he knew everything and, and reckoned it was all a marketing ploy, but I thought, I don't care if it's a marketing ploy if they're still spreading gross national happiness. He was someone who thought GDP was the only index that mattered so I don't necessarily take him seriously but what was it like in Bhutan I'm just really interested
1: that they got you there to help with their gross
0: national happiness maybe
1: kind of um, I got to work with a communication company there um and it was through a friend of mine from the Philippines um who does really cool performance improv but he also does um humanitarian improv stuff, but he was, he had a connection with Bhutan. I'd always wanted to go. This company said yes. So I got to work with social entrepreneurs. On improvising and how they can use it to better um, design better services for the people that they support, and I also got to work with Bhutanese Boutan- journalists who wanted to study, uh, who, who wanted to f- uh, focus on environmental stuff, on how to use it to communicate more effectively. Okay, have we talked about let go, notice more, use everything? You said it at the beginning. Uh, this was the three rules. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. so yeah, um, the, the Robert Poynton's thing: let go, let go of anything that's not serving you in the moment. Um, uh, notice more. Notice something's not serving you, or notice in like more about your resources, and use everything or use everything of service of what you're what you're there to do. And um, so, Robert, P- that's Robert Poynton's core capabilities of improvisation. What are we doing when we improvise? And when I shared that in Bhutan, the, the, one of them. Um, My favorite feedback was, this was actually a spiritual practice. I love that. Um, That was my favorite one. And they said, uh, somebody else said, like, let go. That's very Buddhist. I
0: was thinking when you said that, that it did feel very Buddhist, that let go and notice everything is, or notice more, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly what you do or what we do when we meditate. Yeah. But you're doing it as a living practice, which in the end, is what it's for. I had a teacher once who said, we don't practice meditation to be better people. We practice meditation to be better at meditating. (laughs) But it took me about five minutes to go, I don't know. Actually, I'm practicing meditation so that I can be fully present in the moment through waking and sleeping. Otherwise, there's no point. It's like practicing painting on walls so that you can paint more walls, which unless it's your job, there's no point. I thought that was extremely lovely. Though, so, as we're moving on, you are part of something called the Thrivable World Quest, which just seems to me such a lovely title. Tell us a little bit about what that is, how it arose, and what it does.
1: Yeah, thank you. It, um, so, there's this fabulous lady named Michelle Holiday, and she did a TEDx, and I fell in love with it. <laughs> and um, I was in the UK, and, and I was supposed to go to Montreal. It was one of those weird things where it's like, I feel like I have to apply to do a workshop at this conference. I have no idea why. I don't have enough money to go, but I have to do this. I don't know if you've ever had that happen before. And, and I did, and I they accepted me. And I'm like, oh no, I I have to go now to <laughs> Montreal. And I, I asked my friends, like, do you you know, I. I think I'd seen her TED talk and I I said, uh, TEDx talk. And I said, you know, like, um, if I'm lucky, does anybody know her? And if I'm lucky, I can have coffee with her. And I ended up connecting with her. And she said, just come stay at my house. (laughs) So I I stayed at her house and um, she helped me run a few workshops outside of the the degrowth conference. Uh, That's the same one I met Pablo at, and um, I realized that was, um, I think it was 2000. 12, like, and I realized UK was getting more and more angry. I'd lived there for 15 years Um, since 2008. It was sort of just a, just kept sliding down and people were, you know, like really unhappy. And, and because I work energetically, I was just finding that really overwhelming. And so I I was like, I'm, I can't, I'm going to (laughs) visit Montreal, I'm going to be a visitor for slightly over a year to work with this lady and, and see what we can co-create together. So we we she has this really cool model that's very holistic, and it's and, and a beautiful question. A, her driving question is, what would be different in your organization if we really wanted life on the planet to thrive? Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, that's a beautiful thing. She also knew to get there, play was really important, but she didn't know how. And that's where I'm like, oh, I I can help you. So, she has this model that's that's wonderful, and we a friend's mine. Um, were are running something called uh, the Global Service Jam, and I thought, okay, and and I was actually I've been a mentor and stuff for that, but I was like, I want to run some something joyful in the lens of su- sustainability, with the lens of sustainability, and have it be my secret way to teach a bunch of people I've never met improv before so that if, that they can engender trust quickly, embody the topic that we're there to do, but also have that improv experience so that if there's unprecedented weather, they can respond more effectively. It's a fractal thing, improv. So, um, So we did it. We launched it in, I think it was January... So this must have been 2013, because January 2014 is when we launched it. And we did nine different events, and multiple each event had multiple cities around the world. And we had Tehran, and we had um, Tokyo again, and we had um, Berlin and Baltimore and a bunch of cities. And uh, it it was a a three-and-a-half-hour event. And we would have a topic that was kind of secretly from her model, but, you know, like... (laughs) Some people hate models so we're sort of like, you know, like, and, and anyway, they all the bits of her model are connected. It's, it's not a rigid thing, as you would imagine, because it's about life. So we had this whole um, kind of mythology around it that this we're on, it's a thrivable world quest we're all lovely pirates. <laughs> and each each of the bits of the model are an island. And um, there's going to be multiple ships going to the island. But instead of hoarding the treasure that we find, we're going to share it with each other in the world. Um, so that's what we did. And and um, yeah, that's, that's what the Thrivable World quest is. So if, it, if anybody sort of looks up the website, it sort of looks like it's sort of frozen in time, like it kind of like, you know, in Star Wars where Han Solo got frozen by Jabba the Hutt. And he sort of, like, he sort of stuck there. It, our website is a little bit like that, but I brought all of that stuff and I did some workshops at the Eden Project like off the back of that because they loved me having done that um brilliant
0: I'm thinking I should connect you up with uh, Sam Konefayende who wrote the book Be More Pirate because oh. he thinks pirates were lovable people anyway right. they they created some of the first social systems they had um some of the first pensions they had uh Injury pension, so that if anyone on the ship got injured, they got a special share. So it was in everybody's interest to make sure that nobody got injured. Yeah. And he said they had the best marketing because they had the skull and crossbones. And once they'd established the reputation of that, 90% of the time you run it up and a ship just surrenders and nobody gets hurt. And you you get all the gold and you don't have to pay out the injury pensions. Nobody loses you know, an arm or a leg or an eye or anything. And and they had uh, same-sex marriages and they had a form of governance where there was the captain who was the captain in war, and then there was the quartermaster who was a much more democratically elected person who ran the ship when you weren't in battle. I mean, what's not to like? It was brilliant. That's, that's so cool. so I think bringing that together with the Thriveable World Quest, that sounds so exciting. <laughs> and I love this question. There must be something about Montreal because a few weeks ago, we spoke to B. Lorraine Smith, who is also her materiality thing is all about how do companies behave if instead of producing a 750-page Greenwash document that they've paid several hundred thousand dollars for someone to create, showing how important they think their green credentials are if they actually did stuff that was was designed, if their whole business was designed to create a world that would flourish. And she's in Montreal also. So it must be, we all need to go to Montreal. (laughs) Clearly, when we apply for political asylum from whatever the heck hell england is becoming (laughs) montreal is going to be high on the list i can learn french it'll be okay (laughs) um you just need to get there because because you you did leave canada under an armed escort it didn't sound quite as fluffy as, as making it sound you
1: want to tell us about that sure um yeah i was a little surprised at that too so um i still have my limited company in the uk um, but I looked into the legality of, of actually sort of moving to Montreal. And, and if you're not under 36 and a millionaire, it's kind of hard. <laughs> so um, so what I kept doing is, is you know, like they'd let me stay for X amount of time and then I'd fly out and do something in England and come back. And my last time there, around the year mark, they sort of were like, you've been here quite a long time. Um, so they stamped something gray and documented into my passport and they're like, okay, so I, I always had a, like my next flight out. So I could always prove like, I'm only here for this. And, um, I said like, f- you really got to be <laughs> at the airport <laughs> when you, when you, and, and you got to come four hours early and you got to call on a specific gray phone. Um, uh, when I got to the airport so that somebody could make sure <laughs> that I was getting on the plane. And what was so it was what was so nice. Actually, was I was I had a lot of um, sort of soulmates in in Montreal that I didn't know about. So I had a year was a good time to kind of seed all of that good stuff, and I was really ready to um, be in the world. And that, that's I kind of launched the using improv to save the world tour from there. But to get out of so yeah, um, so I called the grey phone, and a nice man on the other side of security um, met me, and he just made sure that I had. I got on the plane, and what I thought, like, I and he had a gun. Like, he didn't point it at me or anything, but like, he did have a gun. And I thought, you know, like, what, like, what am I going to do? Giggle people to death? Like, I didn't. Yeah, I've started the Thriveable World Quest, but um, yes, yeah. So, okay, that was my. That's why I left Montreal, but I've been back since. It's like they haven't banned me or anything.
0: Okay, you're okay to get in. Alrighty. So let's assume we really don't have very long. Are you seeing the kind of ripple effects? of what you're doing, shifting people to the edges where something might emerge. Because what we see, I think, when we look at, watch television, which I don't, but I occasionally peer over Faith's shoulder or or read Twitter, we're, we're given, we're fed a diet of, of the bad stuff. But with this podcast and the conversations I'm having, there is so much generative stuff, just under the surface, but also just under the radar and you seem to be in place to really see what's happening just under the radar. So can you give us some cheery stuff from under the radar and tell us that it's all about
1: to break out above the radar quite soon, please. I hope so. Yeah, I, I do actually have I mean the reason I'm about to go to Honduras for the third time this in a year. Okay, so so I don't know if you've been to the Frontline Club, it's like my favorite place on the planet in London, and it's the Independent Journalist Club, and they just do amazing documentaries. And I've had lunch there
0: several times, yes,
1: <laughs> but I don't go in the evenings. Uh, about 11 years ago, I saw a documentary um, called Up in Smoke, and it's not the Cheech and Chong film. It's it's a documentary, and it's it was about um, a really interesting scientist, um, ecologist, who made a breakthrough in an alternative to slash-and-burn farming. <laughs> Like it's a nature-based, really powerful thing. And I asked the first question. I was like, "How can I help you?" And um, uh, that tropical ecologist is now my partner. And that happened during the pandemic. So several years later, we had stayed in touch. And the filmmaker who made that, who's British, is living in Berlin. So like, and and um, so the tropical ecologist, he's based normally in Cornwall, but he, um, and he has this project that he's done for many years in Honduras. They now have 420 families just in Honduras who switched switched sl- uh, from slash-and-burn to this nature-based organic agroforestry solution. Um, there is a community saying we want to use the solution now to knit back together two pieces of national park that they had burned asunder. And that's the first time that's happening in Central America. Now, Here's, here's the cool bit that the universe did. Uh, so right before I was about to go um, to first Peru to work with Shapin, and then to Honduras to see my fella and see the, the project in person, um, I was working with Chibo. I don't know if you've heard of them. I think of them as coffee and pajamas because they sell a weird co- combination of things. They're, lo- they're a really big German company. And, Um, I was working with these great ladies in the Netherlands who had been for years working with Chibo to train up facilitators who protect human rights to work with the people in their supplier factories. And the champion for that um, is an awesome internal Chibo champion, for goodness. Like, she is an activator of awesomeness. So she she had made sure that that program became really powerful but then she shifted to coffee but she was still in touch with what the human rights crowd was doing and I I did um using improv to save the world workshop with them in the summer uh, mostly because I was home and they said can you do this next week and I said sure <laughs> and they loved it so much and they said look can you can you design a three-day conference on working with power for us and what I did is I combined improv um, solution focus, which is sort of, um, uh, sits in the landscape of positive, uh, appreciative inquiry, positive psychology. It's a really lovely approach to change. And intuitively I'm like, we need to do something like a Quaker clearness committee at the end of each of these three days. And we did, and it just blew their minds and it was incredibly powerful. And the coffee lady was in that, and I said, oh, by the way, I'm going to Honduras. Do you have any suppliers in Honduras? And she said, yes. And I said, here's the Inga Foundation. This is the um, group I'm about to visit. Do you think any of your suppliers might be interested in checking out, you know, um, what, this, what this powerful program system can do? And so we did an experiment in December, last December. So it was a bunch of agronomists. Giggly Me <laughs> and the Inga Foundation, what they did, we, we took them to the demo farm in the, in the morning. And then they had me doing improv with them in the afternoons to have really good conversations about biodiversity. How do we improve the life of farmers? How do we do, might we do this better if we really wanted life to thrive? They loved it. And they said, you know what? We've never had a training like that. All of our agronomists always train the farmers in a very didactic style. Can we do a training of trainers in May? And that's that was my second time in Honduras. I was in there with a fabulous lady from uh, Peru. And, and, you know, like part of me is like, oh, my God, there's a bunch of ladies going into a room of Latino... <laughs> Um, agronomist engineering men, and we're gonna sit in a circle and talk about our feelings for three days. Like, what are we doing? And and they loved it and it it totally shifted. They like learned it, adapted it, and were ready to try it with farmers. And what was really powerful for me was ah, an organization that wants to follow a nature-based solution has to be able to improvise because if you try to implement a nature-based solution in a didactic and linear way ain't gonna happen and like I think I was like working around towards that for a really long time but that became really clear like when organizations tried to bring the IT approach of agile in but they couldn't improvise and it fell over and it didn't work same thing with if if co- companies really want to make a, a, a profound change and they want to use nature-based stuff, which is a profound. You know, like a lot of the technology that everybody's clinging to doesn't do it. Like it's we got to go back to nature. So, um, so yeah. So so they love it, and now they're going to send. They're going to pair up. This was my suggestion. They're going to pair up their agronomists and like a key coffee farmer to the Inga Foundation for two weeks at a time to really deeply embed them to bring it back and adapt it back with their coffee farmers so so that's some good news I think (laughs) what do
0: you think? That is just amazing that's yes very very inspiring well done that woman (laughs) and I love it that an organisation that wants to implement nature-based solutions has to learn to improvise so actually the single most important thing that any of us can be doing is spreading the concepts of improvisation at all of the levels of whatever networks we're in so that Exactly as you said, I I cannot imagine a group of women sitting down with a group of Latino agronomist engineers, men brackets, and getting them all to talk about their feelings. That just I'm thinking possibly Latino better than let's sit down with a group of agricultural engineers in the UK and get them to talk about their feelings. But I'm sure, actually, in the end, your your skill set and your capacity to improvise in the moment. We'll give them the space to do it because my experience is that in the beginning, if if you said, right, you're going to sit and talk about your feelings, they would just get up and walk out. But if you introduce it in a way that allows that to happen, that actually most people are really very glad to have the opportunity to do that.
1: It was like two days after we had the train the trainer, the two kind of top managers who are awesome in the supplier company, um, who are like running the agronomist, the, the, the um, two guys, are great and and they they part of the training they had to go to a site that they thought was going to have x amount of farmers and there was three times x it was like around 100 people they were not expecting that and they they had to throw out their plan and like this is it you know (laughs) this is it we gotta use the stuff we just use and they got them into needs based and they had great conversations because they had to shift from Chara, who I co-facilitated with, said, "If we can't do just training anymore, we have to do training, facilitation, and learner. You have to be all three every time you meet with people." And and it was so profound. And they said, um, "Not only have they adapted with farmers, now they always work meet in a circle. They'd never met in a circle with the farmers before, but they're using things like finding the value in each other's ideas with their wives and children as well." Wow, that. That will change
0: the world. Okay, I think that's a good place to end on because we've gone way over time, as we always do. But <laughs> we, uh, we, we seem to have a very patient audience. Thank you, people, for listening. But that was just great. The idea that we can begin to bring in the people who are actually every bit as impacted as the people that generally get sent to hold the conversations. And that they can be given the emotional tools. I think at the start of this conversation, I hadn't realized the extent to which what you're teaching is a resilience tool. A uh, tool's not the right word, but my brain has switched off and I can't think. But it's it's there. What you're doing is helping people to cope. You're giving them coping strategies and ways that actually work and that they can share. And if this is replicable and it begins to share. If it's got an R number greater than one, as we know, it will spread around the planet and make a huge difference. So all we have to do is kick that R number greater than one. So I'm definitely planning to come on one of your courses, see how I can manage to do that. So, Belina, thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Girls podcast. I I would love to have another conversation about six months and find out where you've got to. But for now, that was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so
1: much. This has been delightful. Thank you.
0: And that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Belina for all she is and does. And if you too want to find out how to be generous, connected, and loving, even while afraid, or possibly even while not afraid, she has some courses coming up. There's a one-hour online compassionate climate comedy course on the seventh of November, so very soon. And then the next seven-week sustainable stand-up course. Starts on the 19th of January. Details of both are in the show notes, but if you want to go straight there, you're looking for a sustainable stand up, all one word, dot com. And even if you don't go on the courses, finding ways to bring compassion and generosity and humour enough to step past our growing sense of terror seems to me as vital as all of the other structural things that we are thinking of. So please find ways to be generous and compassionate and loving in your lives this week. And that's it from us. We'll be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, huge thanks to Kara C for the music at the Head and Foot and for persevering with the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for the website and the conversations that keep us moving to Anne Thomas for the transcripts and, as always, to you for listening. We wouldn't be here without you and we are always incredibly grateful when you share the links. So this time, if you know of anybody else who wants to find the ways past our growing terror, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.